Hello and welcome to Future Building. I'm Matthew Aitchison and I'm professor at Monash University and CEO of Building 4.0 CRC, a cooperative R&D hub for the building industry. In this podcast, we take a broad look at buildings and building in contemporary society and what's coming down the pipeline in the future. In upcoming episodes, we'll talk with invited guests and experts in the field where we'll cover news and trends along with research and developments in the industry. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Cameron Murray about the burning global topic of housing affordability. Cameron is a research fellow with the Henry Halloran Trust located at the University of Sydney's School of Architecture, Design and Planning. Trained as an economist, Cameron comes at the problem of housing supply and affordability a little differently to the mainstream of debate, providing some fresh analysis and ideas that just might upset the status quo. Cameron's take on the issue starts with what he terms the five myths of housing affordability, and then we then get into a discussion around some solutions and what one could do in this space. Here, Cameron has done quite a bit of thinking, uh, which is brought together under the concept of housemate, which you'll find in the show notes. Keep an eye out for the cameo of Charles Darwin and his thoughts on housing affordability. Yes, I am serious. And I would close in saying that if there was ever a need for some fresh and balanced thinking, there's no topic more deserving of that than housing affordability. I hope you enjoy our interview. I spoke with Cameron in November 2022 from his home in Brisbane. Cameron, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. Uh, Cameron, as we heard in the intro, you've been writing and thinking about housing affordability for some time. I just wanted to ask if you could give us some insights into the housing affordability area. And I, and I think what I mean here is from an academic standpoint, what fields are involved and what do academics who are involved in this area typically study and perhaps leading on to how you would say that that's informed your own work? Yeah. So I'm a bit unique, I think, in the way I'm a classically trained economist. So I actually come from... Uh, a different background to most people. The housing affordability as a, as a social concern uh, is actually very popular with uh, planners and policy people and uh, social scientists um, who worry about things like homelessness and income inequality and, and those social issues. So it's a bit of a broad church, and I'm a bit of an outsider with my very strict um economics hat, although I do have a background in property valuation and development. And um, in, in many ways, that's quite interesting because obviously brand new property uh, projects are generally the most expensive housing in, in a particular area. But I think it's it's worth understanding from, from my perspective, the economics of the market as a whole, not just the small section of the market where people are, are really struggling or having issues with homelessness. So it's a bit of a, uh, a broader field. And obviously I'm not a specialist in what causes homelessness or, or particular um, social issues around that, but I, I am an expert in the economics of the market as a whole. So yeah, it's, it's interesting for me to also learn from these other uh, specialists in other fields. And so if we, if we look at those other fields uh, you mentioned, planning, uh, policymaking, social sciences, when it pertains to housing affordability, what are the, the kinds of studies that those areas are, are usually doing? Yeah, so uh, they're, they're not my area in particular. A lot of it is um, uh, in, in homelessness. There's a lot of uh, trials of different types of interventions to see what sort of works and what doesn't or comparisons between cities of different uh, attempts at interventions and that's you know, a very fruitful way to do it is, is to actually test test different policy changes and, and see what works and what doesn't. Uh, in planning, um, there's a lot of, uh, I think, inferred um, analysis of housing affordability, uh, but rather there's a, a lot of a a lot of sort of discussion of preferences of what types of dwellings people want and what the market's delivering and why why it's not delivering some kind of um, you know missing middle housing or or something that could be more affordable. Um, so that's sort of the approach of planners is is you know looking at different preferences and how can we um, 
change the system to allow a more diverse range of projects uh, in housing. And, and if we can offer a diverse range of projects, then hopefully everybody can be satisfied in terms of having somewhere that's affordable for them. Um, so that's their approach. And I guess the economic approach differs in that um, looking at the system of housing for a whole, my focus is on, well, what's the economic incentive to supply new housing? Where are the economic conflicts between landlords who want the highest price on the highest rent and, and tenants and prospective buyers who want the lowest price and the lowest rent and how those conflicts get resolved through um, interactions in the market. So that's, that's I guess, where I differ and, and the other approaches. Thanks. Thanks, Cameron. That's really helpful. Um, uh, allow me to go on a, a little bit of a, a, a rant as a, as a setup to the next part that, that I'd like to discuss with you, Cameron. Um, obviously, if you read the news, it seems that there's a universal kind of reporting out there at the moment around affordability, particularly not just in Australia, where we are recording right now, but also internationally. So I would just filter out a few of the main lines of, of that public discourse. Uh, number one would be we are in or emerging from a building boom. Uh, number two, uh, we would probably agree, at least in Australia, that the property market has been on, on a high. Uh, maybe it's over, but it, it certainly has been on a high for the last two years since uh, during and after COVID. Uh, number three, supply chains and the labor market are constrained, which means we can't build fast enough at the moment. Uh, number four, uh, another line here is that inflation is at a, a 30 or so year high. And finally, of course, um, to tamp that high inflation, central banks around the world are increasing interest rates at speeds that we haven't seen for quite some time. So all of these things get rolled together, making this a kind of perfect housing unaffordability storm. So Cameron, this is where it comes back to you. At a recent event that we held here in Brisbane, uh, we listed all of these issues and effectively you put your hand up and checked us on a few of those things. I'd really like to go deeper now into some of the, the myths that you think pervade housing affordability discussions and, and how you frame uh, those issues. Yeah, so that was a really interesting sort of overview of the situation we are in uh, economically, uh, you know, the inflation, the construction boom, all of that. The way I uh, look at it, there's sort of two, two big picture ideas in the back of my mind. And the, the first big picture thing is, if you look historically, there's always some kind of problem right? It's very hard to say, oh, there's a perfect world. And if we got there, everyone would be happy. Um, you know, even if the market was very flat, you know, people would be unhappy and say, oh, the prices are flat. And so, uh, you know, there's no incentive for developers and we're not developing fast enough or something like that, right? There would, there would be a reason for an excuse, no matter what the situation or a reason to think there's some kind of crisis. So that's the first sort of lens, this long-term you know, every era has its own issues. The other sort of lens is that the property market is essentially, uh, it boils down to one economic problem. And that economic problem is there's one group of people who own property and there's one group of people who don't own property. And the people who own property economically benefit when the price goes up and the people who don't own property economically benefit when the price goes down until such time as they buy property and then they want the price to go up. So if prices are rising very fast, we can say it's a crisis for renters. If prices are falling very fast, we'll say it's a crisis for home homeowners, you know, going into negative equity. So there's no winning. Um, and so, so that's sort of the um, big picture framing that I like to keep in mind when someone says housing housing's in a crisis i'm like you ask anyone who owned a home and of course um more than 66 percent of households do own their home if the last 12 months where prices increased 20 percent was a crisis for them and interest rates were at record lows and despite the construction capacity constraints and all that that group of people the majority of households would say 
what crisis? This is the best situation it's ever been for me regarding housing, ever. In, you know, in recorded history, I've just made the most free money for the least amount of interest cost um, that I'm ever going to see in my lifetime again. So the, 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 the trick here is from whose perspective, because it's, it is in many ways a zero-sum game. And although economists, you know, very much don't like to talk about zero-sum games, they like to talk about growth and investment and how there's win-wins and, you know, the, and these are great insights. At the end of the day, cheap houses are good for those who don't own property and expensive houses are good for those who do. And that's the sort of heart of the social conflict. So permanent crisis, Cameron, permanent crisis. Uh, this is uh, this is an interesting concept. Well, let, so yeah, exactly. So let me let me then so at this at this um, talk, uh, you hosted Matt at the CRC hosted um, a couple of weeks ago, that was actually my second uh, I sort of talked through five um, myths or stories that we get and, and tried to sort of debunk them or contextualize them. And and that's that's one of them. There's a crisis, like, is there a crisis? Um, and, you know, we hear about the rental crisis, but if you take, you know, through my lens of a, a slightly longer-term perspective, we can look at the rental price index in the CPI in Brisbane, for example, where we both live, uh, and over five years, up until June this year, the average rental price paid for sitting tenants or across the market as a whole on average, not just for new leases, only went up 5% in five years. And in fact, for the decade up until June this year, it only went up 12%. So actually, the price of renting has been a drag on consumer prices for the last decade. Um, in Sydney, rents are only roughly where they were five years ago today. Despite them having risen at a record pace, they actually fell for three years from 2017 to 2020, and they've just recovered that fall today. Um, so, you know, is there a crisis? Well, it's very hard to see that all of a sudden, um, you know, renting in Sydney is more unaffordable today than it was in 2017, for example. Um, so it's certainly the case that today we have a very, you know, particular rental crisis, which is predominantly in regional towns where during COVID, a lot of high income households relocated and then outbid all those locals for the best property in the town. Um, and those locals had, had relatively cheap rent because they weren't bidding against a lot of high income households. Um, and so that's definitely resulted in a lot of displacement in the last um, 18 months, especially in 2021 and earlier this year. And that's been a global pattern as well. Um, so, you know, that's um, that's the story. Rents are relatively cheap compared to five years ago, even though they're rising quickly. Um, but the big crisis is actually this sort of niche new pattern that we've seen because of COVID. Um, so that's sort of how I'd characterize um, today's. And, and so it's kind of, it's weird to, to me to see media reporting of Sydney rental crisis um, and them showing suburbs where the median rent is exactly the same as it was five years ago. Um, there was actually a, um, a story on Four Corners um, late last year talking about this. And I was interviewed for that um, TV show, the ABC, um, you know, um, current affairs show. And uh, they took this example of a su Sydney suburb where, you know, oh, look at the prices that have gone up. Isn't this tragic? And I just went to the internet, to all the data sources on property and looked and I'm like, well, prices there are still below the 2017 peak. Like this is, and I, and, and I told you, you know, I told the journalist, hey, look, Prices are just recovering. They've actually fallen a lot lately, you know. I also told them that home, first home buying was at record highs. And and the journalist said to me, oh, well, hmm, maybe we won't say that. It doesn't really fit with the story because they wanted to imply that home ownership was increasingly out of reach. Um, and and yet we had record first home buying at exactly the time they, they chose to ignore uh, that that information. So anyway, so myth, 
so so I went through five myths at this um, presentation, and one of them was there is a crisis, and if we look long term, we kind of see well, mm, you know, property markets are kind of just doing what they always did and renters are mm, yeah some are being displaced in certain places but only because rents have been falling for a period and now are rising and people are readjusting and i guess that i've already flagged the, the second myth that i talked about which is that uh, a lot of the press reporting these days is about home ownership increasingly being out of reach and i think um i'm not sure if you you mentioned that but it's a you know, it's a story that's that's happening globally. When prices rise, everyone um, likes to likes to say how hard that is. But in fact, first home buying um, in the financial year 2021, we had about 170,000 first home buying households that year, and the average for the five years prior was about 85,000. So we're looking at double. We had double the number of people buying their first home uh, in the 2021 financial year uh, at exactly the time when the media was reporting how uh, out of reach home buying was. And, and what's really interesting is we could have known this because the data comes through about mortgage lending to first home buyers. Um, the ABS has another survey on household and, and all that partial data was suggesting that investors were selling, landlords were selling after the 2017 Royal Commission and first home buyers were buying. And that's how you get higher home ownership in like landlords sell to renters. And then you get one less um, rental home and one more owner occupied home. And I actually predicted, I predicted an increase in home ownership a year before the data came out and everyone thought I was crazy, but they just, they, you know, the information was just sitting there on the ABS website um, and then when it did happen, I obviously reminded everyone on social media, hey, here's this crazy guy who a year ago predicted this. And so from 2016, we had 65.4% home ownership and 2021 in the census data, we had 66.0. So an extra 0.6%, which is about 60,000 households above what you'd expect. Um yeah. So Cameron, I just I just want to intervene there for a second because this 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 feels like a theme, which is on at least in the first two myths that we're talking about here, they're the popular opinion, right? Or at least what we might conceive of as popular opinion as as moderated through journalism and the press. We are myth one, we are in a crisis. Myth one, home uh, myth myth two, sorry, home ownership is out of reach. As you've learn from your personal experience uh you had some messages there that um you know one of the finest uh and most long-standing uh, independent journalists uh and investigative uh, reporting uh, television shows in australia four corners i clearly didn't want to hear <laughs> um what's what's behind what's behind this this uh let's call it um lack of interest in the facts yeah, you got me, Matt. Um, I think, to be honest, a lot of it is just if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, a lot of it is just you got to tell us. It's you know, there's no story there. If you go, oh, things are fine, like this is normal. Um, there's no story for the press. So that if you can come up with a new and creative way of saying why things are bad. Um, then you'll get covered. Like, oh, have have you realized that oh, actually this thing you've never thought of is bad for climate change? Well, yeah, okay, maybe it is. Maybe it's a real stretch, but if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, if your finding was this obscure thing, you know, is pretty much fine, you know, maybe we could, you know, reduce waste or, you know, improve efficiency here. Like, it's very hard to get anything reported. So the mundane bits of progress that we make <laughs> uh, in the economy every year, just um, they're not newsworthy. And I, you know, it's it's kind of sad in a way, but I think the news is always like that, right? Um, the, the whole man bites dog, right? Um, you know, the more I've been involved in the mainstream media, the more I find, you know, they just like telling stories people want to hear. They're very captured by the audience and... And facts are incidental in many ways. Look, I, I didn't want to um, distract us for, into a um, 
a a broad brush analysis of of contemporary media but i i do thought i, I did think that's an interesting sub theme in those first two myths maybe back to myth number three yeah okay well look uh, i'd be interested in maybe your opinion later on on that matt as well if <laughs> your uh, your impression of of the press when we wrap up so so is there a crisis well it's hard to see anything significant in the data aside from in regional areas the displacement of locals and a rise in rents from people relocating so that's one number two home ownership is increasingly out of reach and yet home ownership is you know higher than it's been at any point in the last decade uh the next myth is a little bit of a weird one there is this um sort of inferred idea that cheap housing is a political winner that somehow um politicians want cheap housing they just they they'd love to try and create a policy that made houses cheaper um but you know it's just a one of those wicked problems right and that's just not the case uh john howard if you if you recall a famous quip he said i've never met anyone on the street who complained that their house was going up in value uh so and of course with uh two-thirds of the country being homeowners 18 percent of households being landlords and those obviously are skewed much to the the top of the income and wealth distribution you know, there's a huge incentive um, to to keep rents up for those landlords and prices up for those homeowners um, because it's essentially free money for them from future buyers and tenants. And if we look at home buyers, we have you know 90,000 households on average a year, except for 2021, where we had double that, who are become first home buyers. So that's a, you know, a percent or so, 1% or so of households who become buyers they want prices to be low but only until such time as they become homeowners in which time at which point they want prices to go up again so the electoral calculus is heavily on the side of satisfying the majority who are homeowners and want prices to go up and and it's sort of obvious in a way because australia's housing stock is worth about 10 trillion dollars so that's 10 million million <laughs> uh which is almost a million dollars per household um on average across the country and so you can imagine if if you really did engineer prices and rents to fall 30 percent you're wiping out three trillion dollars of value from the balance sheets of these households you're also, you know, total rents paid by tenants are about 50 billion a year. You're also wiping a third, uh, you know, 13 uh, or 16 billion a year, sorry, of of income from these these top 18% of households who happen to be landlords as well. And so, you know, I just don't see any incentives. So I guess my point here is that politicians who talk about it and the media who takes them seriously about, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to make houses cheaper with this policy, they are lying essentially um, because they know that if it really made houses cheaper, they'd be gone in a flash, just like we saw in the, um, was it the 2017 election where Labor actually promised to just close a few little tax quirks in uh, negative gearing and capital gains tax, a few minor tax changes um, that might be worth a few billion here or there each year um from the pockets of landlords and they they lost the election predominantly because of that so so i think we've got to face the facts here that directly intervening to make how people's houses worth less money is just bad politics and and when we hear about it um we should hold them to account and it's it's funny because uh the local councillor where i live is a, a greens councillor and he asked the the Lord Mayor at a in council chambers where it's recorded and and transcribed. He's like, "Do you want to see house prices go up or down? Which one?" And he just kept pushing and pushing. Say it. Which one? What do you want prices to do? Go up or go down? <laughs> and of course, being a seasoned politician, the Lord Mayor said, "I want you know affordable housing options for everyone in the city." But because of course that's the heart of the dilemma. <laughs> yes, I know. We we see that, and I think. 
maybe picking up on a theme there is uh, that I feel has probably come through the final two myths is is facing the facts. Um, I think uh, the, the the cleansing light of the data and the facts that you're presenting here is and and also the the central paradox that you've come back to already in the first three myths between owners and non-owners and and the zero-sum gameness of this and and the absence of that very clear insight in public debate uh is something that that debate would definitely profit from so i, I think there's there's real value there okay myth number four cameron where are we yeah okay so myth four uh and this is something I see a lot. There's, and it's funny because every country do, does it. They say the housing crisis we have, however they're defining the housing crisis, is due to some boutique local political factor. Um, the 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 crisis, however we define it, whether it's prices going up too fast, down too fast, whatever. Um, the the big game is to blame local political factors oh councils didn't rezone oh it's our tax settings oh it's this oh this politician didn't deliver so we used um the housing market as a sort of political whip to to whip our enemies with uh ignoring the fact that in every other city in the world that's facing exactly the same problems at the same time uh is doing the same thing and blaming their local council we're doing a different rule and getting the same result that we got because that policy or rule was completely irrelevant um, because they did the opposite to what we did. We both had the same outcome. It doesn't matter uh, for politics. So let me give you uh, a, an example um, you know, of, of how that goes. You can, you can look across cities today um, and everyone's having the same discussion we're having. Um, I've got a lot of people in California who follow my research who are asking me the same things. They're like, what about this? What about this? I'm like, well, ignore it. We don't have any of those policies and we've got exactly the same issues you have. Like, you know, it's very tangential to the, to the problem at hand here. And yet they really, they're searching for some kind of local uh, rule. And if only we'd upzone this, that will save the day. Um, so that's that's the myth that it's due to local factors. But you can also sort of see that across locations and also across time like it's because of a modern factor but it's it's really not and uh, I, I love this quote from Charles Darwin the, the the biologist when he first visited Sydney in 1832 so we're talking you know 190 years ago in Sydney the first paragraph of his diary he writes uh, on from his first day in Sydney I'll quote the number of large houses just finished and others building is truly surprising. Nevertheless, everyone complains about the high rents and difficulty in procuring a house, unquote. So, yeah, you know, we're talking about, oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's capital gains tax, it's negative gearing, it's zoning, it's this. I'm like, none of this existed 190 years ago. You, it's implausible to argue there's some kind of shortage of land or some kind of financialization. It's just literally people who own property like to charge a high price and people who don't have to pay. Um, and Charles Darwin saw it. And, you know, Karl Marx in the 18, 1870s basically made the same argument about Europe. Um, in uh, Prior to the Second World War and the Great Depression in Australia, it was a huge issue that um, you know, there was overcrowding in Sydney. Um, you know, the landlords were extorting tenants working class in society couldn't couldn't buy housing uh and in fact in that period home ownership was you know 40 estimated to be below 40 percent whereas today it's 66 percent uh and we also can look to the future and and i like this quote um from lars Dusit, who's a computer game designer who whose expertise happens to be uh real estate in computer worlds and let me quote him Digital real estate is not actually a new phenomenon, and history consistently shows that when digital land sufficiently resembles the economic properties of physical land, we see digital land speculation, digital housing crises, and even full-blown digital recessions. So, um, so you know, I don't know what 
you know, local council policy, people are blaming for the fact that when you replicate the housing market in a computer game, uh, you get the same outcome. So, so not only permanent crisis on earth, but permanent crisis in the metaverse as well, Cameron? Is this, is <laughs> yeah. this what we have, have I, to look I, forward no, to? That's it. <laughs> no, exactly right. Exactly right. So if we replicate the system of, you know, of property um, that we have on land and in a computer environment and we have a class of people who own it and, and a class of people who don't and need to pay them for access, then uh, I, I think that's exactly the lesson there. Yeah. Yeah, it's so so those who want to blame local factors and and obviously this goes back to the the comment you you had before about the press, you know, what's their interest in ignoring the facts? Well, it's because it helps sell a sort of sexy story about a local political intrigue, right? Mm. Um whereas if you just said, "Oh, this has been the case forever, it's the case in lots of cities," you actually have to ask some deeper questions about Oh, isn't it weird that there's one group of people that benefits and one doesn't? We have this distributional economic conflict at the heart here that yeah. we, it's almost taboo right now to talk about. Yes. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. So local factors, not so much of a, a determinant in uh, in various housing crises. Uh, myth five, Cameron. The myth five is, is is also related in some ways, and hopefully I'll remember to come back. Myth five is essentially that the property market, if left to owns its own devices, will operate in a way that wipes trillions from its own value. Uh, so this is also known as the supply myth. The supply myth is very popular because it avoids these, these tough questions. And it essentially says, um, it's, it's related to myth four about local factors, that uh, if, if governments would get out of the way, there's too many regulations on building homes, if they'd get out of the way, all the property owners who could build new homes would panic and build housing as fast as they physically could until such time as prices had fallen sufficiently, say 30%, 40%, whatever it is. And that and, and the reason, and, and related to this is, you know, the reason house housing is expensive is because we haven't been building enough. That is, there's a shortage. Somehow there aren't many houses around. Now there's a difference between how many buildings are around and how many landlords are advertising to to tenants at a set price at a set period of time. Those are different, right? It's just like how full is the dam and how open are the gates on the dam, uh, the floodgates, right? They're different. You can have a full dam and close the floodgates. You can have an empty dam and open them. And, and we've got a stock flow sort of confusion because today there are more bigger, better dwellings per capita in Australia than at any point in history. So we have the fewest number of people living in the biggest dwellings of the highest quality than ever before. I just don't see how that is somehow underbuilding or somehow a shortage that is somehow causing high prices. Um, in fact, you know, we, during COVID, uh, in, you know, we had uh, record low occupancy just before the financial crisis of 2008 uh, and the same conversations. Oh, it's a supply shortage, but we had record low number of people per dwelling and record high number of dwellings. And that actually reversed um, after the financial crisis when rents and prices fell. So uh, it's, it's a weird thing. So um, it's interesting because also, you know, that, that argument, uh, was sort of admitted to uh, in the Falinski inquiry. So this was a, a parliamentary inquiry held earlier this year into housing supply and affordability run by uh, Jason Falinski. Uh, he's, he, I think he lost the election, former MP. And I said to him, he was, he was very good. I said, look, you keep talking about this supply myth that developers want to flood the market and decrease prices. Can you please ask some developers to come in and ask them, if I rezone a lot of land like you're proposing, how much will prices fall? Tell me the number under O. So he ended up, he's, you know, he's, a, he's you know, he's a, he, he's a politician, but he's, he's a good guy there. And he got them in and he put them under oath and he asked them, 
if we upzone the country, will prices fall 20%, like you argue, or like I've heard? This is, and they all said no. One after another, they said, oh, that's implausible. That would never happen. Uh, you know, that's not going to happen. He goes, okay, that's your answer. Next person, what's yours? Oh, I agree with them. That's just never going to happen. Okay, next person. Of course, prices had just risen 45% in Brisbane, 20-something percent in Sydney and Melbourne. And they're arguing that if you upzone up the whole country, you couldn't reverse, you know, six or 12 months worth of price gains ever. <laughs> and so they all weaseled out at the end and said, oh, no, 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 maybe, maybe prices wouldn't grow as fast some point in the future, in the unknowable future, right? So you've, you know, and it, and it obviously makes sense. And and another um, part of this, related part of this is that, um, you know, we, there's a story now that build to rent housing. So having corporate landlords um, build whole apartment buildings or, or subdivisions and, and retain ownership and rent the whole project. Um, so currently in Australia, um, new buildings, apartment buildings are like what they call condominium style in America, where you sell each each individual apartment to a different owner and they can rent it themselves or occupy it. Um, and so build to rent is about having these large scale landlords that own the whole building and manage it. And that's being talked about today as a, a part of the solution to the crisis, this undefined crisis that we have. It would probably help, wouldn't it, Cameron, to... Uh, if we are interested in solving uh, the crisis to define the crisis, I think that's a really interesting point as well. Sorry, I interrupted. Carry on. Yeah. Um, there's there's two funny things about that. One is that the people pushing build to rent are, are large scale property developers who own large land banks of undeveloped land um, who want tax breaks um, so that it, it's more beneficial for them to own the property and sell it. Um, so this this the first puzzle is this. If there's a shortage of places to build houses, how come? How do they have all these spare sites to do this unprofitable build to rent when there's just so many buyers and not enough land that they shouldn't have any spare sites to do these build to rent projects, right? So they're essentially admitting we've got heaps of land and lots of stuff we want to do, but we need some kind of tax break to, to actually do it. Otherwise, we'll wait. So they're almost admitting that. The second thing is that when these projects have actually got off the ground, you know, there's no incentive to build to rent and rent cheaper than the market, right? Like, because already when you build to sell, the owners are most predominantly landlords, private landlords, and, and they don't have an incentive to sell cheap, well, to rent cheaply. So why would a professional, you know, money manager or corporate landlord have some kind of incentive to do it? Or even to offer more secure leases, which is, I think, the only reasonable argument they'll go well a corporate landlord's not going to sell so you won't have to um, be forced to move if the landlord sells but why would they offer that isn't it also beneficial for them to offer rolling 12-month leases and then kick out people who won't pay the higher market price now let me give you an example so in sydney mervac one of australia's biggest apartment developers they did a build to rent project and now they brag on their website and to their investors about how they're getting a 20% rental premium because what they've done is instead of making houses cheaper, they've packaged in like premium gym service, concierge service and all this sort of stuff they can also make a markup on into the package and they've rented to, you know, the very richest um, inner city professionals. And I'm like, well, how is this, what, what problem is this solving exactly? You've just created the most luxury rental thing that you say is 20% is above the average uh, rent for a similar apartment in your suburb. What, what's, what's, what is this the solution to exactly? Exactly. And it's a very good point that you raised, Cameron, because it is, um, you know, and from the work of some of your colleagues at the University of Sydney, uh, where I myself once worked, um, I was aware of this supply myth. Uh, as well and it is perhaps the most common uh, story uh, that that comes from the political side into the mass media which is that we need more housing uh, to solve it and looking at it from a building side I remember thinking uh, back in those days that a really easy way to sum summarize this is that builders and developers only build and develop when it's profitable to do so they do not build and develop when it is not profitable to do so and and that is 
the mandate of any of those companies. Uh, and if we didn't wish it thus, then then that would require some very deep introspection. And so it strikes me that everyone's doing this dance and it's not, it's, it's not uh, just the politicians, it's not just the media and it's not just the developers, but everyone has a, uh, a similar, uh, let's say, position in this dance that is actually not not just a fundamental acknowledgement of of the underlying facts of the system that we're in and the problems that that system is throwing up for you're us. totally right i think it's just the 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 economic conflict between owners and non-owners is just too big and scary of an issue um you know, uh, there's this, uh, I'm going to forget, there's a classic saying, if you live right in a dangerous area, you know, where there's cyclones, you never think about um, those major dangers because it's just too big and it's unavoidable and um, you think about little things instead. Um, yeah, there's a classic uh, quip about that. But yeah, it's it's. I agree that that's the case. And I think, you know, there's also a little bit of a, um, you know, what would we call it? Um, uh, research industrial complex where um, we don't really want solutions because then we've got nothing to, 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 to no one, no, no one's going to fund our research on housing markets again. If we, if we fix the core issue, um, you know, there's a, I, th I think there's a little bit of this because, you know, I can tell you, I get offered a lot of consulting work. Oh, we need another review on this. We need another review on that. We need this. I'm just like, well, I can, charge you to write a similar report um but mm, if you look at for example parliamentary inquiries or government major reports i've got a list here in front of me of about 20 in the last 15 years nearly every year there's a major inquiry into home ownership housing supply affordability home whatever it is I mean, it's great that you've got the list. I, I would actually uh, strongly suggest we, 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 if if possible, we create a link to that list of 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 your reports. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it was in my submission to Felinski. I said, "You you really doing another inquiry? This is like an annual, you know, ritual now of doing the same inquiry." <laughs> so, look, uh, Cameron, uh, uh, I, we've we've covered the five myths now. And you've uh, your your last comment, I think, is is uh, around the research industrial complex, um, which might just get you and I as academics uh, uh, offside with the rest of our colleagues. Uh, but just holding that for a second, uh, I would say if we move the discussion, I guess, from an analysis of the myths and the problems, I'd say that you know, as academics and commentators. Uh, you know, the charge that could be made against us is that we're really good at problem identification, but perhaps we're less good on the uh, on the solutions front. I, I wanted to ask you if you've seen some promising solutions uh, or at least some work towards them, or is there one of those reports or one of those committees, you've, you've, you've referenced the Felinski uh, committee recently, that is actually making progress in this area? The, the short answer is I, I asked myself that question about a year ago when when this discussion sort of hit fever pitch and that inquiry, the Felinski inquiry is going, that, that four corners came out. Um, and I just thought, hey, hang on, guys. Um, we are just falling into the trap of looking for local factors, um, not identifying the, the economic conflict. And so I ended up sort of... You know, doing what I think you know we should do, and saying, "Hey, if we look around the world, what what's the housing system that people uh, objectively complain about the least?" <laughs> let's put it that way, because let's be clear: no, everyone complains, right? Like, so just be so. You know, you can build you know a new public park for people, and go, and this is the greatest thing ever, and they'll complain about it. Oh, it should have had this. We should have done that. I'm like, compare the compare this to the situation you just had, or you build a new hospital, uh, or you create a public um, health system like the public hospital system, which was a huge debate in the 70s of, oh, that's impossible. That's communism, this and that. And now, you know, I, if you compare to health systems abroad, I don't think you'd tra trade trade. Uh, 
uh, a lot of the public hospitals in Australia for for anything. Like the the system is is very good compared to its peers, even though we still complain about it. So so my approach is well, what's this, what's if we look around the world, if we were in the United States having a, a discussion about healthcare policy and and the inequalities and the conflict between you know service providers and charging high prices in healthcare and and getting cheap. Um, healthcare for, for residents, we would look around the world at, at systems that yeah people still complain about, but objectively a lot less, and there's clearly huge benefits. And we'd look at Australia, we'd look at uh, the Central European countries, and and we'd go, okay, these, these are systems we could borrow. And so that's what I figured needed to be done for housing. And the, the standout global benchmark there is actually Singapore. So I said, okay, Singapore went from 20% home ownership in the 1960s to nearly 90% today, right? Whereas Australia peaked its home ownership at uh, 72% at the end of the 1960s. And it's it's sort of bounced around, but it's now 66% today. What on earth are they doing? And, and what they're doing is they're addressing this core conflict that um, non-property non owners have to pay property owners, Um and so they say, hey, why don't we just create for non-property owners an outside option that is not private provision of rental housing and let them buy from this public provider? Just like in hospital systems, if you know, if we if health insurance and private care was too expensive, we go, hey, here's a public option at a cheaper price. And you can choose the private one or you can choose the public one. And it gives you that option. And we could do the same in housing, which is what Singapore does. And so I wrote a report basically proposing that we rip off, <laughs> copy, uh, all the best economic elements of Singapore's system in a in what I call housemate, uh, you know, the conjoined policy word um which would be a public home ownership provider and it would essentially operate like a um you know major property developer doing apartments townhouses and land subdivisions and if you were an australian citizen who didn't own a home you would have the option to buy from housemate at a massively discounted price um a a new home uh, so in Singapore, for example, if you're a resident, you can buy a brand new four bedroom apartment for $300,000, where in the private market, that same thing in a condominium de development might cost a million dollars. And you can use your compulsory savings to pay a deposit and repay the mortgage. And so it actually is the case that for most young Singaporeans, they buy their first home. And there are no out-of-pocket expenses because their compulsory savings covers the whole mortgage and deposit. And that's essentially the system they have. And so advantageous is that system compared to the private market that um, the Housing Development Board, which is the public housing developer, has actually grown to become by far the largest uh, builder and developer in the country. It, it does sort of nearly 90% of new housing simply because that public option is very good now in australia because we already have 66 percent home ownership we can create a much smaller scale um, option uh, and remember there's only a hundred thousand or less new first home buying households a year and we could offer all of these people a discounted property and and they you know, they could choose to buy in the private market because there's a much more diverse range of things, or they could choose housemate and it would save them, by my estimates, 50 to 75% of the out-of-pocket cost for a comparable dwelling, um, and sometimes more, and you would have that ownership for life. That's really interesting, uh, Cameron. So obviously, I'm not trying to feign ignorance here because I first came across your um, advocacy for Housemate um, in the press. Uh, it was released a couple of months ago, I believe, uh, and and I read about it and investigated it. And, and so um, it became one of the things, one of my sub-agendas for a recent tour that I undertook to Singapore to check this out. And I I can independently confirm for our listeners that it is 
not only a system that is alive and well, but it's actually uh, flourishing over there. And, and in actual fact, uh, what I learned from my recent trip to Singapore is that the difference between, you, you hinted just before at some differences between private market and the public market housing, that the differences between those two markets is, is uh, shrinking. Uh, in fact, what what began uh, in the 60s and 70s as relatively modest uh, housing options has become uh, something much closer to the kind of private condominium style uh, housing that we'd expect in other in other countries. And I think that is a really interesting thing as well. And the, the other point that I would just make, Cameron, that might be of interest to you and, and our listeners is the source of national pride that is palpable in Singapore for this system uh, and this national narrative of taking um, uh, what was in the 1950s, and I heard this many times in many of the meetings I had with government agencies and um, uh, private uh, companies, was going from having the world's densest slum in the 1950s to uh, almost complete home, um, you know, lack of homelessness. Uh, so th this has really become a source of national pride. Uh, and I, I thought it was really interesting. But the question that I'd like to put to you now uh, is how would housemate and this concept of a, of a, of a let's call it a, 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 a moderated Singaporean model adapted to Australian conditions, avoid the issue of taking money off the table for those agencies and businesses that are currently, you know, have their fingers in that $10 trillion housing stock pot that you mentioned before? So, so it won't, unfortunately. Um, there's a political sales pitch required for any of this because Housemate, at the end of the day, is giving non-home, um, non-property owners, you know, renters and prospective buyers, the option to get um, a heavy subsidy, right? So that they don't have to pay the property owner the full market price. And at the end of the day, that subsidy is real. And I calculate it to be, oh, I have to double check my numbers, but it's not its not particularly much. It's about $50,000 per dwelling because you're not, you know, you, you're sort of um, taking on the risk. You've got low financing costs and you've got some economies of scale. Um, so you're offering all these people a, a subsidy. What you're not doing is you're not directly manipulating the price of private dwellings through changing tax settings or whatever the case may be. So I think politically it sells because you go, hey, you guys in the private market, you do what you do. We are comfortable with how you're operating. You private developers, off you go now. We're just doing this little side project where people can come and buy from us as well. You, you tell me you're competitive, I'm going to compete with you. The, the trick, of course, is that the price effect is indirect. So there's two effects. One is you get the housemate dwelling, you save a heap of money over your lifetime, that you're not paying a landlord and you're not paying the seller of the home because the seller of the home is giving you a below market price deal. We're, we're sort of collectively subsidizing this. So that's one effect. The other effect is this indirect pricing effect whereby because every citizen non-homeowner is, it's not like foreign buyers come in and buy them. You have to be a citizen non-homeowner. Um, you have to qualify. And um, the effect is to draw potential buyers out of the private market and to give renters a cheap alternative option, which means that when a renter is saying, should I pay this much to move to this town to work? They can compare that not just with buying and renting in the private market, and they now have a third option, which is buying from housemate at a discounted price. And even if they decide to rent, they won't pay as much because of the relativity, right? So it's a, you know that's what competition is, right? When you get a new competitor at a discounted price, fewer people will pay that higher price for the other product. So you've now got this competitor for all the renters and buyers the willingness to pay in the rental market will decline. So there's this indirect effect on the balance sheets of property owners that I think you could politically navigate by emphasizing that you, you, you're not directly manipulating their property price. You're just offering an alternative and saying, hey, if there's an effect because of competition, you guys can compete with us. 
um, drop your price, do offer something we can't do. I mean, we're just a cumbersome public agency building houses after all. <laughs> um, if you can't beat the the lazy bureaucracy, um, you know, maybe, maybe we shouldn't believe other things you say about your competency or your analysis. Having, so. having read this in, in great detail, um, you do cover off uh, a lot of the, the contingencies that are likely to come up. I can, I can just uh, feel in, in our audience now, there would be people out there who've studied this area or perhaps are involved in the industry and they might be going, yeah, yeah, but what if, and what if this and that, and, and how, how does that not, you know, stimulate uh, speculation in the economy? I want to reassure the audience that um, the the view that Cameron's just given us now is is obviously an abbreviated version of Housemate, but there's quite a bit of data on uh, Cameron's website that we'll obviously post into the the show notes here that you can go down into the uh, the very fine print and details of of what's being proposed here that we obviously won't get a chance to cover off in in today's call. So uh, I I would say again, Cameron, having heard having read your proposal having heard you talk about it and now having had the the chance in the interim to go to singapore i i really do think uh that what you're proposing here um uh, is certainly a viable option uh and i think speaking very frankly about some of the things we've spoken about today and and, and a kind of facing of the facts um this hand-wringing and indeed in some cases pearl clutching that goes on around the housing affordability issue uh, in public debates uh, can be put to the side uh, by actually you know you doing what most academics traditionally don't do and, and that is actually putting a viable solution on the table so I, I, I congratulate you for that and I would direct the audience to to go and have a look at housemate and next time, perhaps you're reading a, a press story or, a, a, um, you know, some of these debates that are going on, actually think about this concretely and say, well, there there is actually a viable solution. There just needs to be the, the will uh, to do it. So uh, thank you for that, Cameron. I, th I think that is really good. Um, I think I'd like to move to, to wrap up the conversation now and I've, I've got a couple of closing questions for you because it's one thing to do great analysis like you've done uh, it's another thing to put a solution on the table and put your you know walk the walk uh, I, I suppose we could say um, and then there's another thing which is uh, trying to look into the crystal ball that is the future uh, which I believe uh, your training as an economist would give you some um, license to do. Uh, firstly, I want to ask: Are things going to improve, or are they going to get worse? Well, let me let me go back to to the first myth of: Is there a crisis? I I pre have predicted um, that we will have another. We will change our crisis. We will move from the rental crisis to the house prices are falling crisis in 2023. That's what I think. Um, if you look in the US, which is it's nice to have a an economy that's a little bit forward in time to ours. And if you look in the US, you'll find that they had all the same rental issues. But what's actually happened in the last couple of months is rents have started falling in a lot of areas. Um, in fact, the most recent data by the um, uh, the, the agencies that look at advertising, uh, advertised rentals had, had rents falling in something like over 80% of the cities that they, they monitor. Um, in October. So I suspect that that we will follow. So prices will continue falling. Rents will surprisingly peak in certain areas. Um, and all of a sudden that will be the crisis. The, the home buyers with negative equity, uh, what do we do about them? Um, yeah, so I think we will, like we do in property markets, we'll move from one crisis to the next crisis, which is the exact opposite of the previous one. Okay, I think that's that, That's a really good uh, prediction. Uh, my second wrap-up question is really, um, again, I guess we've spoken about analysis of the problem, putting forward a solution, and then and then looking uh, to a prognosis of what might happen. You've mentioned that uh, there are 
there is political will required, for example, to adopt a housemate um, process. What other conditions do you think are required in order for us to see some change in this space? Yeah, look, I'm really not sure. I'm, I, I do think that you need a crisis to create change, like a genuine one, not just a run-of-the-mill, there's always a crisis in housing. And I think it needs to affect you know, the, the families of important people, right? That the working class has running out of money, like no, no, no one cares, nothing's going to change. They still have to vote, you know, for essentially the two parties. But when it, you know, when these landlords and when these well-connected people get into trouble, I think that's a crisis and that might change. And yeah, it's, I really don't know. I mean, my, my expectation is that nothing's going to change and we'll, you know, it'll be another 20 years of the same same complaints, the same cycling through different 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 changes in the market being a new type of crisis. Um, and and look, we, I think we've got to be wary also of um, like half solutions. So one of the one of the critiques of of housemate is is that isn't this the same as Kiwi Build, the New Zealand um, public housing construction program? And and I think the difference here is that. You know, at, like Australia today, New Zealand doesn't want prices to come down and they don't want a public competitor to, to be successful. So they essentially said, we're going to not subsidise this. We're just going to build worse, smaller dwellings in worse locations and make them cheaper rather than actually, you know, we have to resolve the central conflict here of um, offering potential buyers, non-property owners and, and rent renters a, a discount on the market price, not just a worse property. So, you know, there's there's a bit of a political reality to, to face up to there. And I find it interesting if we look, there's a book that came out recently on the politics of Medicare um, in the 1970s. And it goes through all this uh, uh, sort of... Um, political debate that happened about how it's impossible, how the free market can do this. And, and we were having exactly the same debates. Oh, this is a crisis in this. Oh, we have to rely on, uh, you know, voluntary uh, community groups to, to supply health services. It took, it took 15 years of, of a real heated debate to, to really cement um, in the minds of Australians that public hospital is, is a right, public health care, and that we should all chip in and do it. And there's very good benefits. We can improve on the market outcome by adding in this extra option. And I, I suspect it will take a 10 or 15 year protracted crisis of declining home ownership uh, you know, that, that is affecting more well-connected and wealthy people that that leads to change and unfortunately I, I see most mostly things plodding along as they are okay um you know who knew that economy didn't always uh have a happy ending um <laughs> I, I know I, I, <laughs> I uh I, I I did lie before when I said that I had two cl uh, closing questions because I can't resist the third one uh, and that is um, recently in the October budget, the uh, the Commonwealth Government of Australia announced its million homes uh, policy. I, I would love to hear your commentary on that in light of many of the things we've spoken about today. Yeah, well, I don't think there there is a policy there. I think there's just a, a word, a political catchphrase, because my understanding is they're going to just take credit for the next million homes that will be built. And since we build a couple hundred thousand a year, then, um, you know, in, in five or six years, we'll have built a million new homes and whoever's in government can take credit for it simply because that's how the, the market operates. And, and my understanding is the intention in terms of non-market price dwellings, this whole idea of having giving people a non-market priced option, uh, the, the ambition there is only 30,000 homes over a decade. Um, and the, the way that they're getting there is another completely bizarre thing that has, has um, entered the debate, which is this idea of a social housing fund, which is uh, we're, we're not going to build houses for people and rent it to them at the price we think is fair because that is the 
concern we have that the rents are not fair on low-income people or whoever. We're going to not do that. We're instead we're going to take a, we're going to borrow two billion dollars, and what we're going to do is we're going to buy BHP shares, Apple shares, and Treasury bonds, and and the sellers of that will end up with two billion dollars of cash, and we'll have those assets, and we'll just sit there and we'll wait and cross our fingers, and hopefully we make a margin on the returns of that fund, and we'll dribble out that money. Uh, into constructing some dwellings over the next decade. So it's like, it's the greatest excuse to get a really, really big number in a headline, but actually not do anything. And I've, writ I've written critiques of this. I'm like, if you have $2 billion to spend on BHP shares and listed assets and Apple shares and whatever else you buy, you have $2 billion to spend on real estate assets, as in build new houses for people. Like, the, this is just the greatest... Um, political deflection accounting trick that I have seen for quite a while um, that we don't have any money for housing, but I've got to spare $2 billion here to buy non-housing assets. But I, the last thing I want is housing assets, even though I, I've argued many times that our public housing agencies, like we, we already have agencies that exist and they build houses for people and they rent them below market price. And there's massive social benefits to this, right? And if you look at New South Wales, their public agency, the Land and Development Corporation, their balance sheet increased from $34 billion in 2012 to $54 billion in 2017 because the price of all those assets they own went up. So what they're doing is they're providing social housing for people day in, day out. And at the same time, the value of their balance sheet is growing like the name for that would be a social housing fund. It's a thing where you put money to provide social housing and make a, a financial return through the capital gains. So that literally, you know, if you take the words literally, is a social housing fund. You build social housing, you own them. You know, it's different to house to make because I said we should sell them. But, you know, I'm, I'm very supportive of all non-market or below market um, housing options. That's a genuine social housing fund. What we've done is we've said, I like those words, but I'm not going to have social housing in my fund. I'm going to have BHP shares and other assets, and I'm going to have anything but social housing, even though if I had $2 billion, I could also make money by just building, giving it to the um, state public housing agencies. So it's a, it's the greatest uh, trick. And, and I think that 1 million houses announcement is just the cherry on top of the greatest political deflection uh, that, that we have seen for a while in terms of housing. And on that note, Cameron, I have to say it should be clear to our readers that you're not a huge fan of the policy. <laughs> uh... <laughs> I just don't think there is a policy in there. Like, um, it, it's, yeah, there's, it, it's an immaterial, it's all show, no substance. So... It's very hard to me to say I support a nothing policy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, look, uh, and uh, thank you uh, for that, Cameron. Thank you for your time today. Uh, I've found it really instructive again um, to hear you talk about these issues and to go into the detail of them and to pull the statistics and the logic and the, the facing of the facts that, that we've done today. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, I'd also just like to point out to the audience that, of course, all of the notes and references will be added online uh, into the show notes, as will Cameron's contact details for those of you who'd like to reach out to him. Uh, he'll supply those details. Uh, Cameron, thank you. And to everyone else, thank you for listening. Thanks very much for having me, Matt. Pleasure. Pleasure.